Well, hello everybody, this is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 221. So glad you could join me. Today's guest, Joshua Mench, is here from the Czech Republic, which is why we're broadcasting early. We are about eight hours before the regular time um, so that Joshua could be with us. Um, but looking forward to a great show. Um, we have some people trickling in. I think I, I'm curious about what the, uh, the turnout is going to be because, you know, for some people, some people complain that the Rattlecast is too late at night. And we'll see if, uh, if different people show up when it's earlier in the day. Um, but to start out like we always do, um, we're going to have our Poets Respond poet. And Lexi Pell is here. Hey, Lexi, how are you doing? Oh, there you go. Yeah. Hi. So thanks so much for joining us. Um, So your poem, um, The Bats Are Having Non-Penetrative Sex in a Church, was really interesting. I love, you know, Poets Respond so often um, has poems that are based on the news, and and so much of the news is political, especially in the last, you know, five years or so, um, that, you know, it's such great to have a turn away from the really political topics. I love when people, you know, touch on things that are, you know, science-related or just amusing. And this one is both. It was an amusing science story that caught your eye, and then you wrote this poem. Can you tell us a little bit about how the, the poem came to be? Yeah, um, I realized recently that um, when it comes to to like really getting um, like on my foothold in a piece, oftentimes using like the funny or the absurd, it kind of like the diving board gets higher. Um, like I'm able to to kind of make a leap easier rather than starting with a really serious subject and then trying to move from a serious place to another serious place. So I, I just find it it's like a lot easier for me, at least, to to kind of figure out what a poem wants to do when I'm starting from a, a, a different place. I'm able to move more. Um, so, yeah. And this article was just so funny to me, like the scientist who opened the email with the video in the church. Like at first, he almost didn't open the email because it sounded like it was spam. And just like the whole thing was very funny. And I was like, OK, well, this this feels like a poem. Yeah, it's so true that when you don't, it, it's weird how when you don't have something at stake, really, like you're not trying to write like the great epic poem, you're just sort of playing and then surprising things come out because of all that freedom that you have to sort of explore your own imagination. And then they take a turn to serious topics a lot of times, too. But when you start out with that freedom um, of playfulness, that's sort of childlike almost, um, you uh, you get to go different surprising places. Um, did, did this poem take you somewhere unexpected? What do you say? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I I knew, like, I I just had a lot of fun with it at first. Like, uh, I had, like, such a short window of time to edit it before I submitted it. Um, But, like, I, you know, at first I was like, oh, a vulgarity of vampires, you know, must be, you know, I had, like, a lot of fun with, like, the language and everything. And obviously I had to pare it back because it was too much. Um, (laughs) But, yeah, I I definitely, you know, there was a lot of fun and and play. And I had no idea where it was going to end, but I kept thinking whenever I'm stuck in a poem, I'm always like, what questions uh, does, does this poem want to ask? And I think that in this poem, actually the questions ended up in the poem, but usually I'm just like, Hmm, what, what, what is this poem thinking about? You know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that that's kind of, but no, I had no idea where it was going. I didn't even know I was going to bring in like where I was when I was writing it or anything. I just, you know, kind of let myself be open Mm-hmm. Um, to whatever. Well, why don't you go ahead and read it so everybody can uh, hear. Okay. The bats are having non-penetrative sex in a church. Like Christian kids, hopped up on guilt and hormones looking for a loophole. The bat's penis is too big, a scientist says in the article, and the tip is heart-shaped. 
what god of ridiculousness blew into his kazoo to make this morning of sensational headlines and half-burnt toast. There's laundry to fold and an appointment to cancel. The dog won't stop licking what doesn't appear to be a stain from the blanket. What's the difference between making love and making do? What does bat foreplay look like? How do you ask for touch, but not too much? Yes, you see that personal turn it took toward the end. And I love, too, just the the fact that, you know, scientists are out there looking at things like that, you know? Like, this is such a world that's rich, that's full of things to explore. And, um, you know, it's one of those things that people are out there. There are people who specialize in, like, small fruit bats, you know? And that's their, their focus on life. And because of that, we get to have this rich world that we live in because we have such a diverse focus of interests. And it's great to uh, illuminate that. Thanks so much for sharing that, Lexi. Thank you. Yep, that was Lexi Pell with Sunday's poem, The Bats Are Having Non-Penetrative Sex in a Church. And uh, now we're going to take a quick break and go to our main guest, Joshua Mensch. So sit tight, and I'll be right back with more poetry. And we're back. Like I said, today's guest is Joshua Mensch. Uh, Joshua is a poet, visual artist, and founding editor of the literary journal Body, which is wonderful. I love it. It's probably my favorite online-only journals. Uh, He grew up in Nova Scotia, Canada, and lives in Prague, Czech Republic. His first book, Because, a lyric memoir, which is right here, a beautiful book, was was published by Norton um, in 2018. And he was the finalist for the Governor General's Literary Award in Poetry. He also has a great poem in Rattle's uh, Fall Issue. So we finally got to have him on the Rattlecast. Hey, Joshua, how you doing? Good. How are you? Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm great. It's great to have you. You know, I am... it was Francesca Bell who recommended your book. I mean, she's been a guest twice, one of the few people we've had on twice because we love her so much. And she said, you have to read Joshua Mensch's book because. And, uh, and I, I looked on my shelf because Norton sends me a lot of their books. I thought, is it there? And I haven't read it yet. And I did. I think this was like 2019 maybe or 2020. And it is just a powerful, it's one of the most powerful books of poetry, um, a really difficult topic, but done really in a, in a way that's just so rich and, and, you know, sort of part of the, the literary canon. Like it's a, it's a real weighty book that has a purpose and staying power because it's such an important topic and so well done. So I'm so glad we could share this book and, and talk to you today. Well, I'm really glad to be here. And thanks, Francesca, for passing that along. Um, you know, she's one of my favorite poets, so that means a lot that she did that. Uh, well, do you want to start out um, with an early poem, like maybe the introduction from the book? Uh, the, the prologue, Yeah, sure. the prologue, yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, I'll just read through this. Were it not for a cabin on Cape Breton Island, with only mist to break the tree-lined horizon, were it not for both of us, I was 12 and together we read Homer's Iliad, not the Odyssey, though mostly Don read aloud to me. His gorgeous voice, his bathrobe slipping off his stiff, shiny shins, his legs like white radish stalks speckled with long, wiry hairs. While outside snow hugged the forest and a deep fog rose around the top of the hills, the snow thick and wet, ideal for throwing, And every once in a while, the deep silence would be interrupted by a crack-like gunfire as another spruce snapped under its weight. Bark shrapnel and rolling sound ricocheting up the narrow valley till it reached our meadow. An eight-sided cabin with a black stove that wrapped us in heat and made our knees itch. 
flame pulse logs lighting our limbs with nail width lines of blood. At night, he'd read to me from the tracker, a chapter at a time, then tell stories about his childhood in Kansas, the endless fields and grinding oil wells, floods that washed away low-lying houses and poor people with them. His father, whom everyone loved but him, his fat mother, his unhappy sisters. He'd read to me and tell me about my parents, whom he knew at school in Toronto, about a woman named Carmen and the man she thought was the devil, about his wife, Lorna, and her head full of brains, about the small college in New Mexico, where the fun ended when evil Dean Nydorf blew a tumor and had everyone fired, then sent poison pen letters after them. Don, Lorna, even my dad, anyone who wouldn't give him a blowjob. He'd show me dirty movies to inspire me to try harder with my body, for it was truly impressive how a guy could shoot his wad that far. It didn't matter that I didn't have a wad yet, but sometimes a small pearl of clear lube appeared at the tip and he licked it off because that was my accomplishment. And even though it wasn't ready yet, he was proud of me. I knew the names of animals, the silhouettes of birds, and the sounds an engine makes when climbing up a hill. I could tell what gear and how far away his truck was, and had memorized the avionic controls of the fighter jets that patrolled the coast. He showed me how to fashion a battery from a potato, how to flood an engine. I told him the speed of a bullet underwater, the speed of the earth around the sun. He told me that floating in space in orbit was nothing more than endless falling. Yeah, that was the uh, prologue poem to Because, the lyric memoir by Joshua Mensch. And so, Josh, what, um, can you talk us through a little bit just of the general story of, of what, what happened? How did you end up, um, you know, with Don under, you know, his, his um, abuse, really? But, but what was the, uh, can you just give us a little outline so we know what we're reading and what we're talking about? Um, so the the poem, and I, I, I think of this as, as just kind of one poem in, in, in different parts, um, tells the story or kind of recounts a sense of what the experience was like of knowing this guy who was a longtime family friend. I met him when I was 10 uh, when we were living in Virginia, and I knew him until I was 15 when he fled the authorities. Um, so there's this kind of five-year period that's covered in the book. Um, and it was just, you know, it was a pretty kind of classic story of a, you know, your friendly family friend, neighborhood pedophile who grooms young people. And, uh, in this case, me and a few other people I knew and, uh, you know, enveloped him in the kind of the cult-like environment of, of his world. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was a, you know, a process of you know, kind of seduction and subtle coercion and um, brainwashing and, you know, all the kind of stuff that goes along with that. And this guy was like an expert manipulator, right? You know, and it wasn't, you know, just like the kids, you know, it was like their parents, the friends, the entire community. I mean, this was a really well-loved man, widely respected man. 
mm-hmm. um, despite all outward signs that should have like raised flags. Um, you know, it, it's it's not an improbable or an unusual story, um, but in this case, it was mine, and it made for an interesting subject matter to write about. Mm-hmm. And and why did you want to put it together in a book? I mean, one of the things that just makes you think about so much is how, um, you know, it's it's um, it's sort of going on right in front of everybody's faces, but they don't see it. There's a sort of like willful ignorance, like people that people don't want to see what's going on. And and is that part of it, you know, having these kind of stories shared so that people know how, how those type of people operate? Um, or or what was it that motivated you to put this together in a book? I think my motivations were, were less public at first, you know. Um, at a certain point, you know, the news of this guy and what he did came out and the ability to lie about it, you know, it was impossible, right? So, you know, this guy, you know, when I was 15, uh, his cover got blown and he fled. And so there were, you know, a lot of questions, you know, from parents, teachers, whoever, friends, and at least from my side, a lot of denials. Um, and there was a certain point where that just wasn't possible or p- practical anymore uh partly because he got caught and the police got involved in courts and various things and that let out a flood of questions and every answer was just unsatisfying right there was just there was no satisfactory answer there's no way to explain that kind of thing in in rational terms and I'd wanted to write about it partly as a way of trying to understand that encounter, understand that experience. You know, someone who works through things by writing about them, uh, you know, works out an understanding by writing about them. Um, but also as a way of trying to answer those questions for for other people, for for friends and family. And the structure of the book, I mean, what sort of allowed me to finally do that was encountering a structure that the 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 anaphora of because mm-hmm. um where every statement is an implied answer or it's an answer to an implied question mm-hmm. and you know then the writing of the book was partly just you know memory lane right just letting kind of various scenes from memory play out and later i organized it into a narrative um but the real fun was just, you know, discovering a poetic device that allowed me to to tell a story that way. Um, so as horrifying as it may be to read, it was great fun to write in a lot of ways. Yeah, well, that, that's definitely interesting. And and healing, too, I imagine, like finding out, um, you know, getting back and, in, in, you know, coming to terms with those things that you had difficulty thinking about. I mean, that's sort of the point of poetry. So many people talk about, um, you know, going into poetry in the first place to come through difficult situations like that. Um, did, did you find the, the process healing? No, not really. Um, I, I understand where you're coming from when you say that. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's, that's a, that's a kind of a common sort of, uh, approach. Um, partly because these, these weren't things that were difficult for me to think about. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been thinking about them a lot before the book. I did find that they were difficult to talk about at a certain point, 
but um, I found they were really difficult for for me to talk about with other people who who went through that experience, like other friends from that that camp, um, people who were at various states of disclosure or honesty with themselves, and. So I, I did feel that, you know, in writing this, I was articulating something for, for other people as much as for myself. Um, but a curious thing did happen, and I guess you could you could kind of put it in the healing bucket, which is there's a kind of evacuation that comes with writing where all of the stuff in the book is stuff that I don't really have a lot of access to on the level of memory anymore. Mm-hmm. There's kind of a, a papering over. So now the filter is there. And the memory I have is the memory of writing it or what's in the book or the way it's encapsulated. Those memories aren't as raw or accessible anymore. They were really like sort of ripped out of my brain. And that was an unexpected thing that happened. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, well, let's hear hear more from the book. Um, next up, we start on page 11 is what you had next. So I'll just say first that I'm going to read four quick scenes that take places at, at different points in time and in different locations, but I won't read those, those placeholders. I'll just kind of read through it, but it's okay. You'll get it. Because the room is bright, skylit, painted white with a mirrored wall and a queen size bed. Because it is July, hot, and I am half undressed already. Because I let him undress me the rest of the way. Look, when he tells me to look, says, look at yourself. Aren't you beautiful? Because I am disgusted by the word beautiful, a word for babies and girls, a word for sisters, for my mother. Because I dive deep into the bed and let it swallow me, then pull him down so that it swallows him too. Because the room is small, damp, cold, clinging to our skin, like the dew on the TV, every surface wet from the AC. Because outside the city is cooking and we have to keep the television loud to drown out the air conditioner's rattle, which won't stop, we won't stop it. And wait for night to fall so we can finally go out. Times Square lit up, a glittering current of bodies and glass where three feet in any direction gets you lost. So he wants to hold my hand which is embarrassing because he uses the word kidnapped when I won't let him and says, you don't know what some people are capable of. And it's true, I don't. With dawn, the night is always half awake. When we sleep, he wakes me in my dreams. Because the room is spare in an annex to the house where no one discovers us, where no one can hear me hold my breath then let it go, like a river, like a flood. Because the room is not a room, but a tent near the edge of a cliff. Because the wind won't stop. Because we wake up in a pile at the bottom of the tent, the stakes nearly out, the lines taut. Because in the dream I am having, I fail to resist, or my resistance turns into something else because it's daybreak and the birds are starting up, because the other boys are awake and want to go whale watching, because breakfasts need to be made and someone calls his name so his hand quickens, 
because I come quick as his hand, which is a hammer. And that was uh, four more sections from Because uh, by Joshua Mensch. And we could see in those those um, those sections we looked at that the main um, part of the book is this trigger kind of of Because. Uh, so many of the sections start out with Because the Room. Um, and really the poem, or the book isn't only you know, one long poem is a lyric memoir. It's also one long sentence. You know, the, the central section, um, you know, you saw at the end of each of those sections, they end in a semicolon. And every every sentence is connected by a semicolon. So it really is one long sentence moving through with this trigger of because that sort of starts out the memory. And, and so often it's because the room, so we start back in that place and then we sort of pull the memory out of that because from, as you mentioned before, the unanswered question. Um, or, or unmentioned question. Um, how did you how did you come to this form for doing the book? It's, it's I've never seen a book like it, and it really it, it it reads you know you know you talk about a lyric memoir, but it reads like a really gripping memoir with with rising action and um, and sort of this tension that builds and builds, and there's sort of climax scenes, and it feels like reading a novel, but we get the intensity, the lyric intensity of a poem of poetry too. Um, and it's because of this format that you found. So how did you find the structure that you ended up using for the book? Um, partly but by accident, you know, luck um, and a little bit of theft. Um, I, you know, it, it just, it kind of floated past me, this, this the phrase, because the room. And I realized that the room was a great way of framing memory. You know, previously when I tried to write about this, I tried, you know, different strategies like prose, you know, and I I tried writing, you know, like a like a, a prose memoir or even like a kind of auto fiction. And, you know, I, I would be like 30 pages in and like two days had elapsed. And I was like, how am I going to cover five years? You know, it'd be like war and peace. It didn't have that sort of intensity. And I got I started to realize I needed to find a poetic form for it because only poetry would enable the kind of compression, the lyric compression that a poem enables would allow me to create the immediacy of experience that would achieve like one central objective, which is to answer the question of what was it like by saying here, experience it. I, I, I won't explain it. I'm not going to render judgment on it. I'm not going to give you uh, any statements about what it means. I'm just going to run you through that experience. And with a poem, you have far fewer narrative expectations, right? You don't you don't have that sort of architecture of plot or character development, right? There's there's a lot more grace in terms of what people are willing to do. The architecture of the lyric enables um, a stepping into experience in a different way that doesn't require all of the setup. And there were two books that were really important to leading me into the lucky discovery of, of that, that phrase, Because the Room. One was a book by uh, an American poet, Donna Stonecipher, mm -hmm. um, called Model City, which, which I think hadn't even been published yet. But I, she's a, a friend, and she lives in Berlin. And I've been to readings of hers. Um, I think I have the book somewhere somewhere around here, actually. Um, oh, I'll find it. Mm -hmm. um, but she has this anaphora that she uses, and it was called It Was Like. 
you know, it was like something, something, something. It was like, and the, all of the lines, it, they're prose poems, mm -hmm. but they use this naphoristic structure. And I think that that music was very much in my ear. Um, and then there was a kind of associative trigger of answering, you know, people are asking, what was it like? Mm -hmm. And then it was like, and then, so, you know, I think that that music was part of it. And another book that was important was Sarah Peters' 1996. She's a Canadian poet who had a book that came out with Anansi. Oh, wait, hold on. Okay. My wife was watching downstairs. <laughs> she realized I forgot the books there. This is 1996 by Sarah Peters. Mm -hmm. It was published in 2013 by House of Anansi. And she has such an incredible sense of voice. And it's a voice that's very close to I think my own or, you know, where I grew up, she's also from Nova Scotia. So she's from the same town as me. And there was a kind of a tonal sensibility that I think also gave me a way in mm -hmm. because those are two things I was looking for, a rhetoric and a tone of voice that were natural. And I think that those two books kind of echoed in my brain in a way that made me receptive to that that kind of eureka moment when when those lines did come in. And those first four things, or those four things that I just read, were the first four bits of the book that I wrote mm -hmm. in that order. Um, yeah, it's interesting too. Um, uh, Rose Lenard in the chat already mentions there's a claustrophobic feel to it. And, and that's the that's really where the, the tension comes from. You feel sort of trapped in the narrative in the same way, you know, you are trapped in the narrative um, is, that you're telling. You know, there's a way that because the sentences never end, like it's it's a book, it, it's one poem you read in one sitting, but you don't even get a, a chance to like take a break and like like walk away, you know. And there's so there's a real sort of emotional power in that. Um, and I think, um, and that format works well too. It, it, how would, how did you come up with that with the, with the semicolons and the, the thing never ending? Um, because the period just looked wrong, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it just, it didn't make sense. Um, and a comma didn't make sense either as punctuation. I needed to, to separate the phrases and the syntax. Um, someone had told me at one point never use semicolons in a poem that is the most horrible punctuation and so i guess i took that as a little bit of a gauntlet being dropped mm -hmm. you know it's like i can do that um and i and i do like the semicolon i think it's a, it's a remarkable piece of punctuation in terms of the way it can conjoin and separate ideas and phrases um and originally i was thinking you know i could end it on a period but i was like but it doesn't really end Right. I mean, there's there's a kind of a resistance to an ending. Mm -hmm. Right. And I wanted the narrative to be self-reflexive. Right. So, you know, I don't need to end the book with any kind of, you know, uplifting thing that is normally expected of like the misery memoir, you know, where, you know, the, the classic sort of like I don't know, child abuse story or bad marriage story or whatever that sort of ends with, you know, you know, I suffered, but I was brave and I overcame. And, but, you know, that's just not how life works. It's, mm -hmm. You know, that's just a narrative trope. And I I don't like that kind of architecture um, in a story. And so I didn't want that to even be implied by a period. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, well, it, it really it works perfectly for for the the subject matter. Uh, let, let's keep reading from the book. Uh, page nineteen is where we we want to pick up next. Okay. Because the room is the room on the top floor of a house in Virginia where we live for a year until we move. Because the guest is there. And it's not my smelly aunt, but my father's best friend. Because I am 10 and I have no friends. Because he says he wants to be my friend. Because he invites me to come to his camp and my parents say yes. Because we are moving again, so it's really convenient for everybody. Because when I talk, he actually listens to what I say. Because he invites me up to his room to sit with him on the queen-size bed with its light pink spread. Because the bed contains the four of us, the two that are here and the two in the mirror. Because we watch ourselves being watched by each other and he makes it seem hilarious. Because I tell him about a girl I like and for once, no one laughs. Because he asks me if I want to know what a vagina feels like and I suddenly really do. Because he offers to show me but only if I promise not to tell. And so I promise, which is easy since what he's offering is what I want, or at least what I think will be amazing. Because when it happens, I am literally amazed. Because his hand moves faster than any hand should move. It's like I'm leaving the earth, like the earth is not a real thing anymore. Because it's over as soon as it starts. And when it burns, he tells me, this pain is the sharpest part of pleasure. Because you glimpse yourself in the mirror, sprawled across the lap of a bearded, bearded man whose hands grace your neck, your legs, your chest. Because where there was skin, now there is rupture and no one can see it but you. So your promise must be the glue that binds this new body to the rest of you. Because dinner is ready and it's time to move because your mother is calling you because your father is calling you because it's time to move because the room is the cabin of a plane that carries me to him clouds falling up like rain in reverse as the plane descends because the room is an island where dawn is waiting because the fog is heavy and the ground arrives with a bump Trees materializing out of the mist and the slick runway screaming back as its engines grind to a halt in Sydney, Cape Breton Island. A three hour drive from the Marguerite Valley where Dawn's camp nests deep in the hills that ring the valley floor. A place called Forest Glen, far away from electricity and cars, parents and their rules. Where boys can run naked and play Indian. Because for months, this was all I looked forward to. And the 15 minutes it takes the plane to come to a stop on the tarmac, the extra five to grab my backpack and file down the narrow aisle to the door, descend the steps to the wet asphalt and walk the remaining yards to the terminal where Dawn waits on an orange seat studying a map of an island. Half a dozen boys slouched about him like restless dogs ends in a moment of silence. Because arrival is always accompanied by silence because I am new to this camp and the others clearly aren't 
because still more are coming, which means more waiting, more staring at my feet, more hands to shake. And that was another section from um, Because Memoir by Joshua Mensch. And let's keep going. Since it's it's such a narrative book, I think we should read more sections in a row without breaking them up. Let's go to the, to the 1990 section you wanted to share, too, starting on page 29. Okay. Yeah. Because the room is not a room, but a bathroom stall where your enemies have installed you, or rather reinstalled you for the fifth day in a row. Because your stupid nose is bleeding like an open faucet, it does this randomly. And you've already clogged the toilet with an entire roll of paper. Because the bowl is overflowing now, and soon there'll be shrieks from the girls doing their own hiding in neighboring stalls. Because this is a school you go to, where you eat lunch in the library where it's quiet, discreetly stuffing down the sandwich your father made for you because you can't stay here forever. When the bell rings, there's still the long hallway, its endless rows of lockers. Because the room is not a room, but a phone call. The principal at my school has concerns, ran a background check and turned up reports from a camp where Don worked 10 years earlier, alleging impropriety with children, mostly minors from broken homes. Retribution, Don said later, for his complaints that the kids weren't being fed enough, weren't given clean clothes. You know me, he said. I'm always fighting for the interests of our youngest citizens. Because Don is my father's best friend, and mine too. Because school sucks. Because Don doesn't ask for more than the cost of my keep to homeschool me because I've already been in his care and deny everything when my father quizzes me about his behavior, asks if Don has ever touched me down there, because I beg to go, because Don's cabin is quiet and we can read Play-Doh and track animals through the forest, because he likes me, which is really nice of him, because of history, which goes back forever between friends, because even when I ask him about it later, say, Don, do you do this to the others too? He looks shocked and says, no, no, there's only you. Oh God, there's only you. Yeah, so in that section, um, you know, we see this, uh, this line your father asks. Um, you know, he asks if Don has ever touched you and you, and you say no. And um, you know, so that, that implies that he had worries and wondered about it. And, and the whole book brought me back. I was sort of on the fringes of something like this um, in, in kindergarten. Uh, I was at a Catholic elementary school, or it's a whole school through grade nine, I think. And the principal there was, was molesting and abusing the kids. And he would bring them in for like corporal punishment kind of in his office. And um, there was this way that sort of even at five years old, like I knew that something was wrong, like something was weird about it, you know, that, that he, the kids would go there and, and be punished in a weird way. And I told my dad about it and he came in and, um, you know, told the principal that I was never going to that office or he was going to be hit, you know, and, and that saved me from being part of it. And only later, years later, like when I was in my 20s, I, looked, I remembered that and looked up the, the school and the principal and he had been arrested eventually, like five years after I left 
Um, and, and the thing is, like, everybody sort of had this idea, but nobody acted on it or knew. Everybody was in this kind of denial, even though they had suspicions, too. So, so how does that play into it? I mean, how does... What are the things to look for if, if, you know, if you're a parent worrying about this, you know, what are the warning signs and how do you get over, you know, that hunch that's just a, thinking it's just a, you know, just, just something that you're, that's not really true and you're just having this little worry in the back of your head, but then you let it go. Like, like it clearly happens so many times and so, so often. Oh gosh, I don't know really how to answer that. Um, uh, I don't really know what advice I could give for how to identify that. Uh, you know, children are very good at hiding things. And it's, you know, we think of children as kind of simplistic creatures with simplistic minds. And it's, you know, should be enough to say, you can tell me, you can trust me, whatever, you won't get in trouble. As if that's the only um, cost-benefit analysis that, 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 that they're weighing, um, you know, the, the principal, you know, I, you know, when, when I moved from public school, uh, right. Or, or state school if in, in North America, that's, as it's called, um, to a private school, right. To, to a, a so-called home school, which is what Don ran. Uh, and he was a licensed educator. I mean, his school was was registered. Um, but to make that transfer, you know, um, the school principal and you know authorities, they do the background check. You know, they they do check this, and and you know the principal flagged these claims that had never resulted in any kind of charges being filed or or court action. Uh, and so, you know, of course, my parents asked, right? How do you not ask? How do you not follow up? But, you know, for me, it was a pretty simple equation, right? It was stay in school where I could be bullied and have a miserable time or go to this other school where I would get to read really interesting books and be in the woods and not deal with horrible other kids. And, you know, the whole kind of molestation thing was just, you know, something that I was in a way inert to already. It didn't really bother me. It was something that wasn't something I liked, but it was something that was, think about it this way, right? Think about how many people you know who stay in shitty jobs because you know what? A paycheck is a paycheck mm -hmm. because you can get by. So when you're a kid, everything that you deal with, school, whatever, is your shitty job. And the same way people put up with shitty jobs in their regular lives, the same way kids will put up with shitty parents, shitty teachers, shitty everything, because they weigh the benefits. Like, what does it mean to disrupt this? Mm -hmm. Right? Like, you might have a total asshole dad, and then it's like, but do you want to go into child protective services? Do you want to end up in a group home? What, what are the consequences of shaking that up? Right. I mean, I think as people were fundamentally conservative and we're more afraid of what that change means and to disrupt a status quo that we've gotten used to is very difficult. So how do you know if this is happening to your kid? I mean, look, if I would say warning signs, like, I guess I'm always on alert for people who are just like way too interested in kids, like when people really like kids a little bit too much 
you know, and I mean, some people, they really like kids a lot and they're not perverts. It's like, it's, it's fine, but do they isolate themselves with children? Do they try and get kids alone? Do they talk to kids on this weird level where it's like me and you conspiring against the other adults, mm-hmm. right? Is there, you know, is there a kind of, uh, I, I don't know, just, I guess I would say, look for any vibes that remind you of a cult, mm-hmm. right? Because that's essentially what you're doing, right? Like that's the child molesters are. I mean, like there are different kinds of child molesters, obviously, right? There's like your school principal who just used fear and authority. That's one way, right? That's like the classic kind of, I guess, like the Catholic priest approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then you have the seducer kind, right? The kind that create literally a culture around this where they say, you know, what we're doing is natural. This is normal. There's historical precedent for this and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's just such an important thing to talk about. And it's something that, you know, it's such a, it's such a difficult topic to talk about that we tend not to. And so it's a good thing to be discussing openly. Uh, let, let's keep going with, with more poems from the book. Okay. Any particular? Um, I don't. Do you want to move forward? Or do you want to keep with that nineteen ninety? It's up to you. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. Let's maybe page forty-five. I can read like the last part of that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Or actually, you know what though? If I read forty-one, sorry, people don't know what the page numbers are. But if I read page forty-one, that kind of gives you a sense of um, Don's wife, Lorna, who's totally crazy. Yeah, she's a really interesting character, too. Yeah, she is interesting. Yeah. Huh? She was... Uh, so, because, I mean, this guy was married, right? Like, he, it's not like we were actually alone there. His wife spent a lot of time in Toronto, and she was out a lot. But she was also there a lot. Mm-hmm. But she had her own cabin. Um, she lived in her own universe, man, you know? So, like, that... The thing is, she gave him legitimacy, yeah. right? You know, mm-hmm. he was a married guy, you know. I wasn't going there just to be with this guy. There was also his wife and this whole thing, right? So so what was her role in this? And actually, this whole this section was written in response to a question from my dad when he was like, what, you know, because in the first draft, he was like, you don't even write about Lorna. Mm-hmm. What, was, what was her role in all this? All right, so here's Lorna. Because the room is a cabin surrounded by frostbitten trees where torrents of white gather in furious gusts, get tangled in branches or ram themselves into trunks. Because the wind is literally howling at the walls where Lorna and I sit sipping tea among scattered clothes, dirty cups and jars of pee, waiting for the gale to pass. Because the outhouse is 50 meters away and outside the wind whips ice into our faces. Because it's better to sleep with the tang of urine then go outside and fight the blowing snow just to relieve some tension. Because the room is thick with incense. Bunches of lavender hang from rafters absorbing smoke from the tiny cones that smolder and ossify in a bowl on Lorna's desk, become fragile dust that explodes and settles on the sill of the frost-covered window every time one of us sneezes or coughs. Because it is deep winter, inviting meditation and sleep. Because Dawn is out with Jay, our new student taken on for the spring, getting groceries and making phone calls from the old rotary telephone in the schoolhouse. 
Jay to his mother in Montreal, Don to his tax advisor. Because Lorna sings the song of my name to me. My name fought a battle and the walls came a-tumbling down. Because it wasn't his horn that felled the city, but his eyes. Through Joshua's eyes, God saw what Jericho had become and saw fit to shatter it. Because to see is to devastate. Because Lorna believes that science is a study of life and that to study life, you have to look at life. Only in the natural world can the answer be found. Because Lorna had the potential to turn the world of cell biology upside down. And when Don tells me later that he wrote Lorna's dissertation after she had a nervous breakdown, he makes sure to point out that the core research was hers. Because Lorna believes it's not the observation of things, but their beings, their beingness, that clues us into dimensions that exist beyond our single slice of the universe. Because Lorna wants to teach me how to meditate, how to block out thought, but not the senses, so that I too can feel the other bodies I have lived in. Because I imagine my previous lives stacked like sheets of paper, each one a story of who you were and how you got here. Because I beg Lorna to ask me about the that to ask about me the next time she talks to the voice of light, a woman in San Antonio, Texas, whom Lorna calls every few months to get patched through to God. Because God is not a man, but a highway along which all souls travel, occasionally falling off and dropping into lives like the ones we're in right now. Because sometimes the souls of lovers dive off the side of the highway, one chasing the other, so that they can be together longer, only to end up brothers or on opposite sides of a war. And that was another section from Because, um, the lyric memoir by Joshua Mensch. And if anybody has any questions for Joshua, please leave them in the uh, chat windows on Facebook or YouTube. I'm watching both. Uh, we already had a question from Monica Dobos, who uh, she says, um, of course, the names are fictitious, but are you afraid of any repercussions for outing Don? Have you had any angst in that regard while writing in post-publication? And, you know, having read the whole book, I assumed that that was his real name. It um, is. Yeah. They're not fictitious. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah. And and do you, I mean, he was, I mean, I don't know, we'll maybe get to that or not, but he was eventually arrested. And, and so it's, it's, public. yeah. Yeah. I mean, before this book was published, I mean, I spent, spent a lot of time on the phone with Norton's lawyers, mm -hmm. you know, cause they didn't want to get sued. Right. They needed, they needed to know um, that this, you know, that this stuff was real and that they would be able to defend that mm -hmm. if, if there was a lawsuit or whatever. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, there, you know, there are court records, there's newspaper articles, there, there was enough, you know, kind of evidentiary stuff that, that who he is and what he did is a matter of public record. There's no slander. Mm -hmm. uh, and the rest is, you know, up to the sort of the vagaries of memory, right. And the foibles of memory. So uh, that was, part of that, you know, the, the, there was a concern about the initials, right? So the various other kids who were at that camp are, are, are indi you know, indicated only by initial. And so there was also, you know, a kind of due diligence around making sure that they weren't identifiable, especially since they were, uh, you know, they're, they're, you know, people who, who <laughs> maybe don't want their story told. And certainly it wouldn't be my place to tell their story. And that's one of the things, you know, uh, somebody mentioned earlier that it feels very claustrophobic. I mean, it's part of the literary design, but it's also part of the 
you know, the, the sort of the architecture of necessity of the narrative. I mean, one of the things about, you know, Dawn's camp, you know, they're really well-populated places. There are always a lot of people around, mm-hmm. a lot of other kids. And reading the book, you might think it was just kind of only me all the time, but I couldn't write about those people. I couldn't tell their stories. Um, you know, that was that was an ethical line that I couldn't cross. Mm-hmm. So I had to kind of keep it focused on the, on the character I could name. Yeah. Well, it's really good of Norton to to let you do that and use real names and, and sort of trust that. So many times I think, you know, in things like fair use, you know, just having to defend somebody legally is just a book's not worth that. And so they'll have all these restrictions on things that they don't need to be restricted. Um, and so it's really good for them for standing behind you and having lawyers to talk to and things like that. Um, well, I guess it's okay because the lawyer... I looked at the website of the lawyer who was in touch with me on Norton's path and on our website, she's a super lawyer. Oh. So, <laughs> literally like that's a, she's a super lawyer. So, <laughs> well, I, I guess, I guess they know how to pick them. <laughs> right. Um, so, so what, what, what about just the, the repercussions from people reading the book? Um, you know, the, the, the guilt your mom experiences um, for having, you know, let that happen. She feels blame for it. Um, you know, your sister's responses to it um, later when you tell her, um, you know, your father's some things that happen, you know, all those things are personal, you know, personal family story. It's your story. And they're sort of on the periphery of it. Did, did they do, do you, what was their reaction? And, and did you worry about that? And, and did you worry about, you know, Lorna reading um, the, the, the stuff too? Well, I don't care what Lorna thinks. Or <laughs> Don, you know, mm-hmm. who's not in jail anymore. I mean, oh, he's not really. Oh man, no, no, no. He lives in New Mexico somewhere. Oh wow. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't care what they think. Um, you know, I don't. I don't know if they've come across the book. You know, people have asked me like, "Have you sent it to him?" I'm like, "No." Uh, my parents and my sisters. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I worried about that. Um, but at a certain point I had to be a little bit ruthless, you know, I, I, you know, I, I didn't, I don't think that I was unfair and or gratuitous, you know, but they were adults, you know, at the time, mm-hmm. right. They were, that they were adults in my lives, you know, and I think that being adults kind of made them a little bit fair game, um, they may disagree with me on that. I mean, my older sister, I was a little worried what she would think. Um, and she wasn't entirely pleased. She was very generous mm-hmm. about the book. I mean, she, you know, um, she did support it. And she, you know, she's one of my favorite people in the world, but she's also a very powerful personality in my life. And I couldn't let her see that manuscript before it went out. Um, because she probably would have told me to cut those scenes that she was in mm-hmm. and they were important for the book and in in part because she's an avatar for a lot of other people mm-hmm. right that get kind of packaged into a, a perspective a kind of instinctual perspective that's totally understandable right so like you know there's there's a point where you know she just she's sort of recalling a friend of her a conversation with a friend of hers is saying you know like aren't you worried like you know what if he turns out to be pedophile right because this is a belief right you get molested you become a molester right it's kind of causal think um and it's not to say that that there is no causation i think it you know it it may work that way for some people um but it's not inevitable Mm -hmm. and it's 
it's a concern that's you know understandable to to express but i you know but she's not the only person who's expressed that concern i remember once i was at a thanksgiving and there was this couple from texas it was in prague i was at a buddy of mine's house and there was like this couple from texas and they had this like newborn kid and you know, this one lady was like, well, you know, I would never let anyone have been molested near my kid. And then just like in the deepest of ironies, asked me to hold her kid while oh, she wow. went to go do something. And I was just like, you know, but it's like, you know, this is, you know, the culture kind of trains people into that. And this is why it's an, you know, it's an embarrassing thing to talk about, right? Like this is a really deeply, there's so much shame around this. Like you think about like women won't report rapes. Right. Because of what it says about you as, as a person, because of the, the acknowledgement of that vulnerability and all that kind of stuff. And I think for men, it's even more difficult. But it's but in addition to the sort of the, you know, uh, so-called like emasculating shame or whatever that, that comes with, like, the fact of having been a child and been, you know, vulnerable to the predations of adults, which is just, you know, it's a little bit ridiculous to be ashamed about that, but you know, that shame is part of the culture. There's also the the additional shame and embarrassment from all the narratives that encase that, mm -hmm. partly because of the excuses that people who get caught doing that kind of stuff make. Like, well, it's not my fault. I was mm -hmm. I was busted and all this sort of right, that kind of builds this kind of narrative. So, you know, there's a kind of scarlet letter that that you wear acknowledging that you know i when i wrote this thing you know i was like i know i've got a good book here i've got a really good piece of poetry and my artistic ego was like get that out into the world but another part of me was just like i am making a mistake mm. you know do you have and, any... I, and that's what my parents were worried about mm -hmm. you know that's what my mom was worried about you know she's like you know, she was worried that I was making a mistake, that I was putting out something out there in the world that could like harm me professionally or whatever. It wasn't just about her embarrassment. It was just her being clear eyed about the way society works and views things. Mm -hmm. And also she's someone who also has a great sense of, you know, a great understanding of shame, partly just, you know, her generation of women, mm -hmm. her culture, you know, she's, you know, from upper Canada, you know, on, she's, you know, raised in, an immigrant community in Ontario in a deeply Catholic culture, right? I mean, just think of the layers of 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 shame that she would be aware of. And, you know, when the publicity started around the book, you know, the publicist from Norton was like, well, do you have any hometown newspaper we could put a notice in? And I asked my mother if she knew anybody at the hometown newspaper, and she was just like, nope. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, that's not, we're not, we're not going there. Mm-hmm. Do you, are there any ways in which you feel like it might've been a mistake to publish it after the fact, or is it just something that you're proud that you did and, and it worked well, or were there any downsides to getting it out? Uh, I don't know. Um, you know, it, yeah, I mean, I guess there were like some downsides. Like, I mean, there were, there were points where I, I was like, this, this was a bad idea, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, this is this is just kind of too much information. You know, I had naively assumed that the literary power of it <laughs> would would be enough, right? That people would be like, you know, wow, that's a horrible story, but I was really into it because it's so well written, right? You know, I mean, people 
like to talk about, you know, the soul of the artist or the life of the artist. I'm more interested in the mechanics of the artist, mm -hmm. right? The, the incredible feat by which some artists pull off an ability to make you care. And when I was on the book tour giving readings afterwards, you know, nobody wanted to talk about the poems or how they were, you know, how it was written or, or the literary kind of aspects to it. You know, people wanted to talk about the subject. I mean, totally understandably, right? I mean, it's a really potent mm -hmm. subject matter. Um, and, you know, I was of two minds about that. On one hand, I was like, well, I guess that's a measure of success, right? A lot of people who don't read poetry read this and wanted to talk about it, wanted to talk to me about it. Mm -hmm. So the, somehow the poetry worked. The, the writing was so transparent. It was like they weren't even aware that they had read something that was a literary construction, right? So that's that's a kind of successful thing if people are able to access the story so immediately mm -hmm. and so viscerally. On the other hand, you know, I had the bruised ego of the, the artist who's like, but recognize the art, right? Like, you know, a lot of work went into this. This is this is something that I constructed. So, you know, it was it's a little bit kind of both, but I mean, it, it's out there. It's it is what it is. I mean, I, I can't reverse engineer a life I've already lived, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. You know, I mean, it's yeah. like the what if hypotheticals that we get after reading. So people would say, well, do you think that if you had done or if, right? I would get a lot of these kinds of questions, and it's like I can't. I can't, you know, this isn't like a television show, like what if the, you know, America had become, you know, Nazi, mm -hmm. you know, like this, this is not a Philip Roth speculative fiction. I, I just, I can't do that. I, I have the life that I've lived in. So the book is out there and I have to, you know, accept that fact. And I was proud of the fact that it, I pulled off what I'd pulled off. I was very proud to have it published with Norton, which was a press I admired and that they had, you know, done such an incredible job with it. And my editor, Jill Bielowski, just had a lot of faith in the book. Mm -hmm. I was you know, not a typical candidate for a, a large New York publisher. I had no previous publications. I, I didn't even live in the United States, you know. I, everything kind of was against her publishing that or accepting that book, but she really believed in the manuscript and um, that it had merit and and took that gamble and then trump was elected and the whole conversation changed so it's not like the book got a ton of attention anyway you mm -hmm. know so i sort of like dodged any kind of major attention that that i might have gotten simply because like the whole lens of the entire world shifted to entirely other concerns right so we went from a kind of me too to that mm -hmm. yeah um, well it definitely i mean the book and and you know great on Jill and Norton for publishing it, but it has the feel, just the weight of, of history in it. You know, it's the, one of those books that should be on reading lists, especially anybody addressing these kind of topics. But, um, but there's this, this, you know, a lot of books are, are published that, um, uh, you know, they're fun to read. They have little insights. They make you think a little bit, they're enjoyable, but then they kind of go away. And this is the kind of book that, that really has such staying power. Cause it's such a powerful topic. So well done. Um, so, so thanks again for writing it and sharing it. I think we should, I want to talk about more things outside of the book. So let's finish out with like one last section from the book and then we'll talk about your, your life outside of this. Okay. Um, let me read section that's got a little more beauty in it. Um, 
Yeah, I'll read this. This is a good. This is maybe a good place to end. It's okay. about midway through the book. On what page? Uh, page sixty. Okay. Kind of gives you an idea of the beauty of that place, in addition to all the terrible stuff, and why I was there, and the kind of mythologies that it involved. Because the room is not a room, but a small clearing deep in the forest, halfway up the mountain that rises behind our cabin. Because I am alone here, having hiked farther into the hills behind Don's cabin than I've dared to before. Because I didn't tell anyone at camp where I was going. I could stay out here all night, maybe even forever, and not see another person again. Because even this lost, I know I'm not alone. I feel the eyes of animals upon me, feel even the eyes of old Indian ghosts. Because my skin is untempered by the weather, my spirit untested by a night without walls, without a roof, without blankets, with only the fire I'd have to make myself, with no one else, I question my ability to survive, and it annoys me. Because this is a story I read to myself. A young brave who goes to the top of a mountain for three days and three nights to become a man. Who has visions. Who talks to his spirit animal. Who soars over his village and sees his sisters down by the river and his mother hard at work. Who sees the woman he will marry and the child they will have together. Who will be his apple. Who sees his entire future and how short the path is both behind him and ahead of him and resolves to live all of it, no matter what happens to him. Because it is a child's story, but I still want to be in it. Because there is peace in these woods, too. And when I close my eyes, I can hear the trees whispering, can hear the insects chewing and trunks creaking, and the drumbeat of birds flitting through the underbrush. Because I wait until the late, low sun's fingers ignites the forest litter, setting fire to carpets of moss, blazing fallen logs and crumbling stumps, until the ferns glimmer like fingered parasols, lighting even me with an ember of flame. Because this is the moment I need to become someone else. Because time doesn't stand still, and neither does the sun. Because soon it will be dark, and difficult to find my way back. Because the forest is growing denser and scarier, even as the sky breaks into colors more beautiful than any I've ever seen before. Because the sky is so gorgeous, I can't look away, can't bring myself to climb back down the boulder that lets me see clear across the valley. Because I want to say, stay, I need this vision. I need to know what my spirit animal looks like, what my future has to say. Because I sit on that rock until the sun crashes down into its own dirty rainbow and the hills across from me go black. And that was another section from Because, the Lyric Memoir by Joshua Mensch. Um, yeah, thanks again for sharing this book, Joshua. Um, but you are, you know, you, interest, you work as a business analyst, 
um, and you are the founder of Body Literature, which we've uh, we mentioned before. Uh, what, what has been your journey through poetry? Um, how, you know, where has poetry's place been in your life? Was it something that you did when you were young? Is it something that you always wanted to do? Or is it something that you found along the way? Um, and, and how does the business and the poetry intertwine in, in the choices you've made moving through life? Um, you know, I, I love, I've loved poetry for, for a long time, you know, I mean, I, I think that even before I was aware of poetry as a thing, it was, it was the music of language that made me gravitate towards certain books, um, and the way images work in the mind. Um, the first piece of poetry I, I remember consciously reading my mother put a a book of Dylan Thomas's selected poems in my hands when I was a teenager and it was just you know mesmerizing I was obsessed and then I you know and I, I remember when in middle school when we started reading Shakespeare um I was obsessed with that you know that I was one of the few kids in the class who just didn't feel tortured by it. I, I just, I really, I loved it. Um, and like a lot of teenagers, I wrote horrible poems. <laughs> you know, um, a friend of mine actually, like from high school, I hadn't been in touch with in like decades, sent me a, a photograph after this book came out. And I, I didn't know this. It was from a high school yearbook. And he's like, you know, they have that like little thing under your picture, like, what do you want to do in life? And I'd put apparently to be a poet. And he's like, well, I guess you did that. You know, so it was like, you know, it, it's always kind of been there. But, you know, along the way, I had to learn how to write. And before that, I had to learn how to read. And I had really good teachers and really good friends. And then later on, when I was, you know, I finished school and, uh, you know, I was living in Prague, I was living in Europe. Um, I felt very isolated from the, the landscape of the literary world in America, um, partly because there was no access to magazines and stuff. And I made friends in the city. Um, and at one point, they came up with the idea of starting a literary magazine and asked me to, to, to join in. Um, so I'm not the founder of Body, I'm a co-founder. Mm -hmm. uh, I started it with Chris Crawford uh, and Stephen Delbos um, a little over 10 years ago. And our idea was to make an online magazine that was for free, to charge no submission fees, you know, all the things that annoyed us, right? So like we, we didn't have access to print journals. Mm -hmm. The few online journals that existed at that time were kind of bad. You know, they were just... They were either like print journals, they would kind of throw up a bunch of stuff every few months and it would just sort of sit there, mm -hmm. uh, or it'd just be like a few samples from the print journal. Uh, so our idea was to do something that was like somewhere between a fashion magazine and a news magazine. And we came up with this architecture, this slider and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And I worked in a technology company. I still work in a technology company, but that meant I had access to resources and I had run technical projects for years. So I knew how to build a, a digital product and I was able to get some colleagues of mine at work to help me build the website. And that was body. And I, you know, had a really good web designer and 
presented it to the guys and was like, what do you think? And they were like, this is cool. Let's do it. Mm -hmm. And then we just spent a few months just hitting everyone we knew up for good work. And then we launched it. And then we were just on a tear for years every day, just publishing and, and just made that thing that we were missing in our lives. And uh, for our 10 year anniversary, um, we got a new web designer, this really talented guy named Miroslav Sidor, who also works with me. He completely, you know, our web, our architecture was so old. The site was getting so slow and he just made us a completely new one, did a really brilliant job. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a collaborative project. And I work on it with Chris and Steven, but also my sister Jessica is our art editor. Uh, Mike Stein is our fiction and translations editor, brings in incredible work from around Europe and around the world. Jan Sickman started out as our art poetry translations editor. And, you know, mm-hmm. we've worked with like so many people um, as well. You know, Francesco was one of our guest editors. Um, and we're going to have more guest editors going forward. So it's a really collaborative venture. And it's, you know, it's part of the fabric of my life. And it's something that keeps me sane in addition to, you know, the the going to work. Mm-hmm. You know, my job is fun, too. I really, you know, I like my job. I like the people I work with there. It's very creative. And we build cool technology stuff. Um, so it's, you know, my life's, you know, your life exists in, in, a, in a continuum. You know, it's not like you're putting things in boxes. You know, I, I'm at work. I don't spend time on social media. I always have a file with a poem open when I want to take a break from whatever task I'm doing. I'll work on my poem for a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm home. Sometimes I don't want to, like, finish that poem or work on the magazine. I procrastinate by, you know, doing boring stuff in Excel for work. You know, it, it just it's all interchangeable. It's all my life. Yeah. Um, Brian or Ryan McGregor asks, um, um, has the whole process from writing to publication of your book changed you as an editor um, and the way you read, edit or select other writers work? Has that process influenced you at all? Not really. Um, being a magazine editor, I mean, the, the magazine business and the book business, I think, are really different. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, I, I think that is, as someone who who writes and submits work, sends work out, um, I'm definitely sensitive to what it means to be a sub, in this the position of submitting myself to others. Like literally, like the word "submit," what that what that means and what that implies, um, and the and the power dynamics that are there. Uh, so, so that's informed me, you know, and the submitting a book was its own crazy kind of ordeal. Um, and I, I had a really weird route to getting this book published. What was that? route? Um, I mean, I was kind of curious because I've, I've never seen anybody whose first book ended up on Norton. Uh, how did you, how did you find that? Um, well, I, so a, a teacher of mine at the university of Maryland, um, the late Stanley Plumley. Uh, I'd sent him the manuscript and he'd responded kindly about it. And when we met up at one point, a couple years later, I asked him what he thought. And he said that he thought it would be a good fit for Norton, which was his publisher, and that I should send it to his editor. Um, and I was like, well, you know, can you give me your email? And he's like, you're resourceful. You'll figure it out. <laughs> That's so funny. I did. Uh-huh. 
And I sent it to her. And of course, yeah, you know, I sent it with like his name as the subject line, you know, to catch her attention. Mm -hmm. And uh, she responded within a couple of days and said, you know, let's talk. Um, and then it was, you know, half a year of waiting for a, a decision. And I, you know, she had a number of concerns, which were like, I don't live in the States. You know, how would I support the book? Mm -hmm. This is pre-pandemic. So, you know, this idea of these Zoom and these online things hadn't really taken off at that point. Um, so I, you know, I, I committed firmly to being available and traveling and I, and I, I did that. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I think she had a little bit of concerns about this being a first book. Um, but I think she was reassured by the endorsements that I had from other poets on her, on her list, like Stan, um, who just, you know, signaled their appreciation for the work and that it would, it had a place. Mm -hmm. And I think that she's someone who's willing to take risks and took a risk. Yeah. Um, and so that was just, yeah, I, I, you know, I lucked out getting an editor who, who believed in the book and having the support of people who, whose opinions were important to her. And that I think kind of balanced out some concerns that, that might've been had. Mm -hmm. um, so, it, you know, it was really great, but to answer the other guy's question, you know, because I do think that's a really good question is, look, you know, all of us who, who edit, we, we also write, we submit. And so for us, our, our practices as editors responding to submissions are really informed by that. One thing we hate is magazines that take like nine months to respond or a year, or they just don't. You just, you go into submittal and notice that your submissions just mark close at some point years later. It just, it's just terrible. And, um, you know, magazines that I've always admired are like the ones that respond really quick, like three penny review within days. Mm -hmm. And so our approach is to do that really like, I mean, we could respond sometimes within hours of when people submit because we're online, we're at work, we're all office rats. Mm -hmm. We see these things come in and it's like our social media during the days to like read submissions and vote and talk about stuff as it's coming in. Um, so we try and get back to people really quickly um, and to, to have the courtesy of not wasting people's time, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so that's, that's maybe the best answer to that question. Yeah. Um, so, so now you, you know, you've published this book, which is, you know, such a, a weighty and important book. Do you find yourself having trouble with a follow-up? Like what to do next now that, you know, I mean, you have, this is like a project of a book that's, that's, you know, that your story that you had to tell. And, um, and, and so do you have that sort of existential dread of like, what do I do? You know, how are, yeah. what are you working on now? Is there anything, are there projects? Are there just poems that you're, uh, what's the situation for, for new work? Um, yeah, I, you know, just writing poems and, um, you know, I'm so Catholic in my reading, you know, I read like a lot of stuff. And so I have a lot of directions of influence and that makes it difficult to formulate a coherent manuscript, you know, in a way that where the poems kind of hang together in a way that makes sense. I mean, Stan was one of these people who would always tell me, you know, it all sounds like you just, you know, put it out there. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I'm reviewing five books now, you know, for our books in brief. And, you know, there are books that have just come out. And one thing I noticed, they are all thematically either unified or they're book length projects. I mean, this is a kind of mode now. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, 
I, I think we're, we're, we're a ways away from the days of just sort of like collections that people put together. This is my best work and here's some kind of organization and, mm-hmm. and there you go. Uh, so that's that's been difficult settling on a kind of an idea of a project Mm -hmm. and then yeah i mean this is this is a hard book to follow up um i've got i've given readings where i'll read a bit from the book and then i'll read some other stuff but people clearly want me to just go back to the book that's Uh that's this kind of weird anchor and it's it's been difficult to move past that um but i think i'm getting there you know I'm, i'm i'm starting to get poems that are moving in a kind of a direction uh, that poem an act of sabotage that you published mm-hmm. in the fall issue is one of those poems that I think do reflect where my concerns and my thinking are now, which are a lot about the, the interior world and the kind of the relationship between the self and the world and how that relates, which I, I don't know, maybe that's all poems do that, but mm-hmm. you know, in my own particular way, that's what I'm doing. Yeah. Well, what I find usually, and I, I think it's interesting because I think part of the reason we have project books now is because they're easier to market. You know, as a publisher, you can say, this is what the book's about. And it sort of follows this easy path when you have that. But but I think that poets always have a sort of the, the things that are itching at them and their subconscious, you know, the things that they keep writing about over and over again, they're trying to figure out. And so when you look at the poems all together, they're does a you know themes emerge that we weren't even aware of because we're sort of have these little obsessions with certain thoughts and ideas that nag at us and so um and i'm really excited to see what what you have you know next when it comes up as a collection uh we have you have one poem um muscle memory that you sent a newer one uh do you want to close out because we're out of time um for this segment okay. do you want to close out and read that one sure yeah here's a newer newer muscle memory Down in the basement, my friend was trying to make me lift heavy things. Breathe out, he shouted, breathe in. He wanted me to give birth to myself in the womb of a building built decades ago for migrant workers. He wanted me to emerge as a moth from its chrysalis into the night air, renewed and newly dangerous. All day the sky had sat like a giant unblinking eye, moving its gaze from horizon to horizon. I had thought, visiting my childhood bedroom, that if I could just sit as I had sat then, looking at the same view from the same window in the same chair, my old dreams would come to me and I would remember them and feel renewed. But the trees had grown up and the fields across the way were barely visible. How my dreams had raced across them. A flock of ravens landed in the trees just then, and I realized my dreams too had changed. Black as night, they pulled all the world's color inside them. Deeply secretive, they made sure to look the same. Even I, whose dreams they'd been, could no longer tell them apart. In the basement with my friend, where the buzzy weight of fluorescent lights pressed down upon us, I breathed out and out and out until a new me finally emerged, damp-winged. In the wide open field of a parking lot, bathed in orange light, 
I heard my old dreams croaking in the trees, harassing each other, forgetting, then remembering, then forgetting. Yeah, another great poem. That's a new poem. We get to experience Muscle Memory by Joshua Mensch, today's guest on the Rattlecast. Joshua, thanks so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure talking to you. A really powerful book. Uh, it's such one of the most memorable books uh, you could read. And uh, really, I, I recommend everybody check out Body Literature, too, uh, at bodyliterature.com. Great website uh, for poetry and send your poems in that way. But Joshua, thanks again for being a guest. It's been great. Hey, thanks so much for having me. It's been fun. Yep. Take care. Bye. Once again, that was Joshua Mensch. You can find his website and, and this book and, and more things at uh, joshuamensch.com. That's J-O-S-H-U-A-M-E-N-S-C-H.com. Uh, just like it's spelled on the book, joshuamensch.com. All right, so now we're going to take a quick break and uh, go to our opener prompt lines. Um, I should say, if anybody enjoyed, if you're enjoying what you watched, uh, please do click the like button um, and share and make sure you're subscribed. Uh, we are also a, a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry and unaffiliated with any other organization, which I'm supposed to say every time. I forgot to say that at the beginning. So we are going to move on to our open lines, though. And um, it's the, the prompt lines, I should say. And how it works is this. I have to put up, I think I didn't include, I have to update the slide. Hang on a second. The... Uh, uh, well, anyway, I will just say then, so I don't have the slide. We'll put up last week's slide, <laughs> but this is the wrong one. So uh, the, how, the, this week's prompt was not this. It was uh, write a. Uh, it was write a. Uh, write an epistolary poem, uh, a letter to someone you are thankful for, um, and so that was a prompt for this week. But how it works is you email that to promptlines at rattle.com. That's promptlines at rattle.com. Email your poem there so I can show it on screen as you read it. Um, share you know, whatever you'd like as long as it fits that prompt. Um, and then join me on the Zoom. And I'm putting the Zoom uh, links on the screen right now. Um, I'm going to put them in the chat windows on Facebook and YouTube. So um, there you go. Join me on the Zoom only if you'd like to share poems. If you just like to listen and enjoy other people's prompt poems, uh, sit tight right where you are. But if you would like to share, join me on the Zoom. And I'll be right back with more poetry. And I'll fix this slide, too, in the meantime. Hang on. And we're back. Thanks for your patience. The new correct slide is now on the screen. Um, temporarily. And again, the prompt was to write an epistolary poem, uh, which is another word for a letter poem, to someone you are thankful for, a kind of uh, Thanksgiving type prompt. We have our prompt poems editor here, Katie Dozier, about to sip her coffee. Uh, Hey, Katie, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. My coffee is cold, but the poetry talk is awesome. So that works. (laughs) Definitely is my coffee. Let's see. Yeah, mine's cold too, but uh, but it was warm before, so that counts for something. That so. does definitely. <laughs> so, uh, what did you do with the prompt this week? You know, it's funny because, to be honest, I kind of thought this was a bit of a gimme prompt. Like, I thought it was an easy prompt, you know, and that it was just like a nice light one for you know around Thanksgiving and everything. And I actually kind of struggled with it in part because I was thinking about the difference between, you know, being thankful and grateful Hmm. and how they're often used as synonyms. But to me, they're they're not really synonyms. So, um, you know, obviously I'm very thankful, but really I'm grateful for you. So this poem could have gone there. I've written many poems like that. And that's not where this one um, particularly went. This is inspired by a 
last minute Starbucks run I took yesterday. Okay, well, let's um, In some up. colder Texas weather than I'm used to. <clears throat> okay. So the man pressure washing the sidewalk outside of Starbucks. You're folded into a gray hoodie on this late fall day that's as cloudy as cold foam. I brush by you, my hands warm in the pockets of my Black Friday white coat. Wind spits your water on my cheek. Eek. Why do it now when the drive through has the whole building surrounded? Inside with the other Sherpa coats, I see the spray paint, the words in red. It doesn't matter what they said. Hate sounds the same in any language. There are toddlers that never stack bricks, only topple them. And what'll become of all these empty coffee cups? Now the wind pumps up flakes of red right along with your water, but this time it's the spray from a whale. And this is the part where I thank you for how you smiled at me when you found a shot of the sun, all at once realizing that you could make rainbows. Uh, great poem. And, and cold in Texas? I don't know. I've never experienced that. <laughs> it's like you have to wear a light jacket. Oh Very cold. Oh my gosh, that's, that's terrible. <laughs> but um, yeah, I had trouble with this prompt too, because I think, you know, the way I try to write or, or tend to write I, I try to find something i don't know that i'm writing about like i try to like enter some kind of you know subconscious thing and this was so directed that i found myself like like how do i write something interesting about something that i already know like that i already you know i could say thank you to people and i, I try to <laughs> you know but but how, how does a poem come to be from that it, it was much more challenging than i thought it was going to be too and um yeah so uh we'll see my poem in a second but we were talking about um um some of the the uh, Joshua Mensch mentioned book reviews and on the uh, poetry mm -hmm. space coming up on Thursday we're going to be talking about criticism in poetry right so so what do you have as a preview for that the poetry space once again is our little show on Thursdays and uh, that we do and uh, we sit around for an hour talking about a topic and you pick the criticism as a topic for this week so what are we going to talk about on Thursday I'm excited to explore the importance of it is it really important to have more I feel like there's you know, far-reaching literary criticism. But when it comes to poetry, we're really hesitant to be like, hey, this book of poetry could have been better. It was lacking in this. And we're so quick to do it with books. And I want to use that as a way to explore, like, the validity of criticism and how um, maybe, you know, just patting each other on the head and saying good poem all the time, maybe we should be doing more. How can we do more? How can we make poetry more uh, far-reaching through criticism that I think is an important part of art? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to talking to about that because I've had, you know, I've tried to publish book reviews for so long. I've tried so many different ways to do it that that, that never seemed to work. And and there's reasons for that we'll talk about on the show. Um, but I'm looking forward to that, Katie, on Thursday. And, and thanks for sharing your prompt poem. Hopefully we'll see you toward the end again for for a little bit to see what next week's prompt is. But uh, but thanks. Speaking of Definitely. Which. Thanks. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah, that's Katie Dozier, our prompt poems editor, coming live from the Woodlands, Texas, with uh, her poem this week, which... Uh, once again, it was to the man pressure washing the sidewalk at Starbucks. Now, mine, you know, I, I, um, I kind of talked a little bit about it in the episode what I was going to write about, which is my dad, uh, you know, sort of getting in the way for me, which he did a bunch of times. And, uh, and there's actually something that I wanted to, to write. A, I have a whole book sort of project about, and, I, and I, it's hard to get it, it's hard to get through it or start, hard to do it. You know, I hard to get a grasp on what I want to do with that. I've been trying to write about it for a long time. Um, but so I, I decided to take a, a very specific little anecdote that could have gone into it. And I made a little tiny triolet because a triolet is a fun little poem. So here's my triolet, um, about this topic, a little thankfulness triolet. Um, here we go. This is 
Triolet for my dad in first grade. I thought you let me walk alone to school. I never saw you there, two blocks behind. So grown up, so brave, so super cool, I thought. You let me walk alone to school. The other kids were dragged by hand like mules, but I was free, at least inside my mind. I thought you let me walk alone to school. I never saw you there, two blocks behind. So that was a little triolet for my dad, who, you know, he did. I mean, we lived in a, in a sort of a rough neighborhood at the time, and I thought I was so awesome for being able to walk. You know, all of my friends, I was, like, bragging to them. But really, my dad was there, hiding behind bushes, making sure I got there and didn't, you know, <laughs> nothing happened along the way as I passed the, the crack house and stuff. So anyway, that is my triolet for my dad. Let's see what everybody else has this week uh, to share. Um, let's go to Nivy first, because Nivy is first in line, and I think, I'm not sure if you're at work right now. No, it's after after work now, right, Nivy? How are you doing? Well, it's just three minutes past midnight for me. Oh, I it's think. very late, I yeah. Everybody. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm so glad you could join us, um, as always. It's always fun talking so and sharing your poems. And thanks for staying up late. to catch an entire show live. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so what do you have to share? Um, I have a prompt poem but a sneaky approach to a prompt poem because I couldn't think of a single person that I wanted to thank because there's like so many Mm -hmm. Uh, so I decided to thank poetry the muse of poetry for want of a better word for giving me and all of us the gift as we would like to call it to be able to share our thoughts out so Mm -hmm. that's what I've tried to do let's see if it actually worked (laughs) let's hear it dear poetry dear poetry In the quiet corners of my soul, your whispers found sanctuary amid the clandestine dance of words. I pen this letter with gratitude, inked in the language you bestowed upon me, a gift unfurling like petals in the dawn. You, poetry, are the alchemist of my beliefs, turning my tumbling thoughts into tuneful text. With every stanza, I'm reborn, a phoenix of expression soaring on the wings of metaphors. Through the tapestry of words, we converse a silent dialogue echoing in the chambers of creation. I am just a vessel charmed by your magic, grateful for the life that spills from the nib of my pen. So, thank you, poetry, for choosing me as one of your voices, for in the dance of syllables, I discover the symphony of existence. Yours in ink and introspection, Nibby. <laughs> That's great. Thanks so much for sharing that, Nibby. And definitely poetry is something we should all be thankful for because it brings us all together and, uh, you know, across time and space, too. It's really great. So thanks for sharing that. Thank you, Tim. Yep. And have a good night. Get some sleep. <laughs> all right. It was Nibby to Karthik uh, from India with uh, Dear Poetry. Um, let's see. Let's go next. Uh, Douglas Silver is next. Good morning, Tim. Morning. Hey, Stranger Douglas, yeah, thanks for you all. Yeah, good to see all you. All of us on the West Coast here saying good morning still with coffee. <laughs> That's um, true. <laughs> yeah, um, Tim, I heard you and Katie say it was a difficult prompt for you all, but it was easier for me. I've been exchanging emails with Stacy Kleinmeyer from The Sun magazine. Oh, yeah. And this would have been like the last uh, the email I didn't write. You know, the last one that I didn't write, it, I had it in my head. I didn't I didn't write it until now for uh for this prompt. Hmm. It's uh, actually an epistolary high bond for oh, Stacy Kleinmeyer. Uh, and if you have it, I'll go, I'll go to it. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Uh, she is the assistant editor of The Sun magazine. Dear Stacy, I know we joked about it. At least I think we were joking that maybe my most successful genre is writing letters to the editor. 
after you accepted another one from me, the sixth you'll publish in eight attempts. I like that ratio much better than with my regular submissions there and elsewhere, where it's more like the score in a one-on-one -on -one basketball game between me and LeBron James. I owe just a few points because he claimed he fouled me and I sank some free throws and he's approaching triple digits, but I'm not giving up. Maybe this time, maybe the next one. And you mentioned that the very first novels were epistolary and suggested I write a whole book of letters. Maybe I'll start it here entitled Dear Stacy, and you could write the introduction. Just joking. Thanking you, Doug Silver. The piecemeal joy of not getting what we want, but glimpses of it piling up on top of one another. Thank you, everybody. Yeah, thanks so much, Doug. We all we can all relate to that, and and there is a joy, you know. It's the the pursuit of happiness, as uh, as they say, and the pursuit exactly. is there. And you're not necessarily catching it, but getting close. Is yeah, and the poems get a second chance when we come to places like this. Even the poems that get rejected, they get a, a second chance in open mics like this. So I, I appreciate that. Yeah, excellent. Well, thanks so much for joining. Thank you. Yeah, that was uh, once again uh, Douglas Silver with uh, Dear Stacy. Uh, hi, Ben. Thanks for sharing that, Doug. Um, next, we have uh, Monica Dobos. Hello, everyone. Hi, Monica. Good, good to see to you. Good to be here. Such a great discussion. Um, it was just amazing listening to Joshua and, um, I can totally relate to Katie when she said, well, it's hard to write positive poems. I feel not many out there. So this is my attempt. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's not a positive poem, but you know, the mind goes wherever it wants to go. <laughs> so, um, and I feel like it's definitely not done yet, but we'll see. Dear Mashed Potatoes, we were centermost, right next to the poor spineless bird. Taking out the backbone saves big on cooking time, they say, although if you ask us, it looked more like blind spaghetti across the road. And the cranberry sauce that spilled all over the table helped in completing the accident scene. Kids didn't seem to care about us, though. He had serving after serving of you. Mom barely touched the green beans. Dad had peanuts with lots of wine. The sausage in the stuffing smelled like mom smudged hell with sage. And when she aimed the rest of you at dad for ruining the Thanksgiving tablecloth, she hit Mordecai, the parakeet, instead. And we got totally roasted. Imagine, we were not even throwing worthy. Now, don't fret. They took Mordecai to the vet, and he saved him. But guess what snack kid packed for the waiting room? That's right, third-degree burned pumpkin pie. He licked all of you off Mordecai first. Thank you for taking over Thanksgiving. Yours truly hurt sweet potato casserole. P.S. Someone please take care of the kid. <laughs> That's a funny poem. Uh, thanks so much for sharing that. Great Thanksgiving poem, too. Uh, thanks, Monica. <laughs> yeah, it's more like that. Yeah, more of a Thanksgiving poem. Excellent. Thank you. Well, thanks so much. Always great to see you. It was uh, Monica Dobos with Dear Mashed Potatoes. Um, next, uh, Laura Berg is here. Hey. Hi, Laura. Good to see you. I also have a non-human uh, recipient of my thank you letter. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, Diasporos, Divine Fruit. Who's out there juggling dozens of golden orbs under the big tent of sky? 
I see you, Persimmon the Magnificent, and I thank you. It might seem wrong in wartime to be writing a thank you note to a persimmon tree, but the tree shines and the words long to be written. Persimmon, your fruit floats in air the way spirit lanterns float on water. November's chill accentuates your sweetness. My eyes perch on your crown, peer like a grackles over glossy leaves, sea green, and I call, call. Persimmon, tell me your history. Tell me about your years among the Algonquin. Living here now, we act as if we own everything, when in fact we own nothing at all. I pick a basket of persimmons, luminous as Osage orange wood, to eat, share, or simply set in a bowl still life. Leaves shed, your branches come into focus, reaching up like Devi's many arms. Without you, the garden would feel empty. Yeah, that's wonderful. I love the descriptions and sounds in that, Laura. Thanks for sharing that. It was a diaspiros, <laughs> divine fruit. Am I saying that right, diaspiros? So. Close enough. It's <laughs> yeah. actual name of the tree. That, that's mm-hmm. the technical name of the persimmon tree. Yeah, well, beautiful poem for, for a tasty fruit. Thanks for sharing it. There's uh, uh, Laura Berg with uh, Diospiros. Um, let's let's go to Brian O'Sullivan. Hey, Brian. So um, I sent something that will sound like it probably was a poem that I have left over from a couple of weeks ago, but I promise I wrote it this week. It just <laughs> and it meets the criteria. I think it just uh, it just was, it took extra inspiration from the prompt two weeks ago, mm-hmm. and it is to my wife Jen. Okay, yeah, looking forward to it. Go ahead. Okay. The end of the world is not the end of you and me. Dear Jen, on the night of the much-heralded blood moon, you led me out the door to scan the sky. I gazed at you, you gazed up as if to scry, watching celestial signs for blight or boom. Then I aligned my gaze with yours, and soon we saw silver shade to red on high. You said, well, Pa, you think the end is nigh? I picked up a twig and puffed it like a loon and answered, I think the world unended, Ma. It's just us left in this tearful veil. The night was quiet enough to feel the true that all had ended and only we transcended. We laughed. Thank you for this laughter that prevails even when the whole world comes unglued. Oh, that's such a sweet poem, dear Jen. Thanks so much for sharing that, Brian. I'm sure Jen's uh, either not listening now or will listen later and, and appreciate that. Thanks for sharing it. <laughs> Thank you. Yep, take care. The Brian O'Sullivan with The End of the World is Not the End of You and Me. Um, let's see, let's go next uh, to Bishwishit Mishra. Hi, Tim. Hey, good to see you, Bishwishit. Yeah. Uh, good to see you, too. I'm just trying to make do here. Uh, I came to, I normally work from home. I came to office. I'm just <laughs> doing well, it great. on I'm glad phone. It works so on your phone, too. Work. Yeah, live from the office. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, I, so what do you have uh, to share? So I have uh, a so-called rock poem. Uh, it's a repurposed poem. Uh, it's called The Missing Man. Okay. Do you have it? Yep, I do. I submitted it. Uh-huh. Yeah, okay. I have it right here. Yep. So uh, it's a reverse uh, letter, like it's somebody writing to me. Ah, so you gotcha. Well, that's an interesting, <laughs> definitely an interesting take on it. Yeah, let's hear it. Yeah. The Missing Man, a magpie's response to a poem. 
you came by the other day and said a few things to me, asked questions to you. I felt you called to see me again, and I came to the same field, saw you walk by on a few other days, looking at me, hopping about, perhaps thinking about the poem you'd written about me. Then you stopped or changed your timings, as I don't see you these days. Was your curiosity about me just to write the poem? Then you came a couple times more until your curiosity petered out as though you bought your news in a store? If so, what did you pay for it? I'm still here, the solitary magpie. If you're interested, you see me solitary mostly. I'm not alone though. I have so much to keep my company, including you. And there's more. If you keep seeing the way you saw me the first time, you'll find many more muses to send your imagination soaring like me. And all you have to give is your attention, yet nothing will be spent from you. I know you want to fly. Let me do that for you. While the plants breathe for you, you go and soar in your imaginations and go on living slowly and wholly for all of us. Oh, that was excellent. I love that take on the prompt, reversing it and having it be a letter to you <laughs> from something that you're thankful for, too. That's a really neat. And I love uh, I love the perspective, too. Thanks for sharing that, Bishop Jet. Thank you. Yep. Sam. Have a good Thank rest you. of your day. You too. Bye-bye. And happy Thanksgiving to all of you belated. <laughs> yeah, same here. Thanks, Thanks Bishop Jet. Right. Thank you. Yep. Thank Bishop Mishra with The Missing Man, a magpie's response poem. Um, let's go next to Stephen Croft. Hey, Tim. Hey, Stephen. Yeah, good to see you. How you doing? I, I'm doing good. Uh, I didn't realize you were starting early this week, mm-hmm. so I uh, came in late, and I just sent you my poem. Hopefully you got it. Yeah, I have it right here. Thank uh, you, Wallace Stevens. So an excellent uh, topic, too, especially since uh, you know, we didn't really mention it, but I always get Wallace Stevens vibes from today's guest, Joshua Mench, because he works like in business and you know writing poems on his lunch break and stuff, just like right. Wallace Stevens was, the old insurance company. Um, so yeah, good poem right. here to, exactly. to, to share today. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, I'm going to have to go back and listen to today's Rattlecast because I came in late, but this is, thank you, Wallace Stevens. Thank you, Wallace Stevens for explaining jars on hills in Tennessee, the mysteries of blackbirds and their entanglement in so much of life's meanings, how best to use a mind of winter and that the only emperor is of ice cream, that by her singing she was see, and see was she, how thus artifice makes order reality. Why the not quite magic of a blue guitar cannot satisfy a chorus's questions, can only give them a long-winded play pluck variations of a thing yet to be made. Thank you for the enigmas of so much you know, dressed in the brightest lines since Keats. None of it makes the most wonderful sense now. Thank you. A great thank you letter to Wallace Stevens, one of my favorite poets too. Uh, Thanks so much for sharing that, Stephen. Okay. You bet. Take care. Stephen Croft with Thank You, Wallace Stevens. 
Okay, here we have a new first-time caller. Sorry to make a first-time caller go last, but uh, Suzanne Sunshower is here. Uh, she's got a poem. Let's see. Hey, Suzanne, how you doing? Hi, can you hear me? I can. Uh, we can't see you. I don't know if you want to turn on the mic or, not, or the camera or not, but uh, it's not on if you want to. No, I wasn't prepared to be seen today. <laughs> well, that's all right. No Thank problem you. at all. So uh, where are you calling from? I'm in a little camper in the big woods in northern Michigan. Ah, great. Northern Michigan. Excellent uh, place to be calling from. And I have, let's see, I have your your poem, but the file won't open for me. It says there's something wrong with the file, but we'll just listen to, if, if you want to read it, we'll just listen to the poem that you wanted to share. It's Late Autumn Suns. I see that, but I can't uh, open it for some reason. Sorry, it's a PDF file. Yeah, I know. It just says it's corrupted. Um, I'm not sure why. That happens sometimes with, with like submissions. Oh. I've never figured out what, what that even means, but, but it's okay. We'll just listen. All right. Well, thank you. It, this is Late Autumn Sun, and it's from my uh, – it's a prayer note for mm-hmm. my son who passed away oh. uh, two years ago last week. Well, I'm sorry for so, that. Obviously, I've been thinking about him. Mm-hmm. Steppenwolf Sun Shower, 2003 to 2021. I released you as best as a loved one can, just when the last leaves began to fall. I set you on your endless journey, just as I'm on mine now without you. An angel who'd earned his wings, you were the saint watching over me when I topped the far leafy hill to catch the last afros of red and orange blazing across the Michigan autumn sky. A fringe of fire, your halo, even now, in what we call the dead of winter. I remember treetops alit in the crazy fall sun, and I nod with love, thinking... Just a few moments more, rays of sun. Yeah, you would have liked that. Oh, what a beautiful, Thank touching you. tribute. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that with us, Suzanne. That was really moving, and I'm so sorry for your loss. Thank you. Yeah, that was um, Suzanne Sunshower with uh, Late Autumn Sun, a really, really beautiful poem. Um, all right. And then um, let's see. I think that wraps up the people who have the open lines. I, th- I figure we might have a short... Uh, a short list of readers, given the unusual time. Uh, a lot of people at work, people actually have to do that, I hear. Um, but we do have a couple poems, uh, poets that, that can't quite be here but want to read a poem or want me to share. So um, let's see, the poem for this week, this is uh, Ted Bernal Guevara with um, Benediction. Um, and this is a Dear Father Tank, it's two. And he didn't include a photo this time. Usually Ted includes a really interesting photo. This time... Uh, this time we just have to poem, so let's use our imaginations too. This is Benediction by um, Ted Bernal Guevara. So let's uh, give this a read. Dear Father Tank, we made a mess of your Volvo, but we were sons you never had and daughters you let alone to think for themselves. Seventh grade was a porcelain sink you constantly used to wash your wide face in. We were the unblessed water and the Ajax soap, odorless to organize the exact steps of your day. We didn't know it then, but you were the scrub of our delinquencies. Thank you for applying the powder thick on the sponge. We didn't know you had it in you. That gentle look, that modest smile, all that circling strokes made us boys bald from head to back. I see the lacking on photos now. No hairs to shave, no blotches to dub. 
even when we paired you up with sisters, glads, and her chin. You with a Gillette to her sparse goatee, unrequited love, pressed in spiral notebooks. Thank you for ignoring this. Thank you for making the ridiculous unfunny. Thank you for cleansing our souls on a daily basis and tearing our lungs of would-be carcinogens. Thank you for detaching us from huge incinerator. Thanks for making us great dent pullers and great polishers of bumpers. Thank you for making us great appreciators of sweetest cars. Thank you for making us believers of sacrament and reconciliation. Thanks for dying in our time. Thank you for lying still. Thank you for making grief a time of self-reflection. Oh, that was great. Uh, really playful and, uh, and profound, too. Their benediction um, for Dear Father Tank by Ted Guevara. Thanks, Ted, for sharing that one. And uh, Dick Westheimer, too, you know, is usually here, but he couldn't be here today, given the time he's, he's on, uh, on the road, I guess. And uh, he asked if we could read this if we have time, and we do. So let's read this one. He's on, on the road back from Baltimore. Um, let's see. Well, here we go. This is uh, Dick Westheimer's poem for the prompt. Why they always first come for the poets, um, with words drawn from the poems of Mossab Abu Toha, the Palestinian poet who was um, arrested but then released eventually, thankfully, um, uh, earlier this week. So here's Dick's poem, um, Why They First Come for the Poets. Dear Mosab Abu Toha, with gratitude for these poems you write on ash, for the ones scribed on the rubble of your home, for the ink you've bled on the back of your grandparents' wedding photo, Dare I give thanks for your body under arrest, for your small son, Mustafa, they told you to drop, for your wife and kids you had, no, had to abandon like birds falling from the nest of your arms, and for you singing that song about a headless doll lying in the dust, because if not for all that I would not have known what you know, Eggplant fields growing flat beneath tank tracks, the slow death of survival, your shadow that's been waiting for your return. If you were still free from the beatings, still had your passport, were still headed south on foot, I'd not have a poem of yours to hold in my mouth, to recite to my family gathered to eat food not seasoned with dust and ash, within four walls that stand strong as the shoulders of a person who's never seen war, never been driven from his land, never felt like he lived in a cage, killed every day, only able to panic and breathe, panic and breathe, panic and breathe. You surrender your body to soldiers who showed what war does to humans, whose leaders are like little Macbeths, whose ranks hang loose about them like giant robes on dwarfish thieves, who conspire to make sure no poet like you can stand, cannot breathe words with their breathing that make the distant and blinded men like me cover our eyes with our senseless hands rather than coins, and at last ask for forgiveness. This, that is your gift." So that was Dick Westheimer uh, here in spirit uh, as he drives back. Um, why they always first come for the poets. So thanks for, so much for sharing that, Dick, and, and, a, and a really important story that uh, uh, thankfully had a, had a relatively positive ending. So thanks for, for sharing that too, Dick. Now, um, that is going to be it for the open lines today. Let me double check. Yeah, that's going to be it for the open lines today for the prompt lines. Thanks, everybody, for sharing poems. Let's, let's take it back to our prompt poems editor, Katie Dozier. Uh, hi, Katie. How are you doing? Hi, good. So many wonderful poems today. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, there always are, and I love that. I love getting to do a prompt, and we all sort of tackling the same, uh, tackling the same monster, <laughs> and uh, we're all <laughs> we're in it together. What do you have for us next week that we can all all try our hands at? 
Oh God! <laughs> I thought you're supposed to put it in. The whole plan is you put it in a document, and then you can read it, so you can be the one to share it. Okay. Yeah, but so... then the document is <laughs> next week. We'll be in person. I'll that, be sharing. That's true. Okay. So, <laughs> so this week's prompt is to um, write a poem that addresses a pain from childhood and use a refrain. So, uh, write a poem that addresses a pain from childhood that uses a refrain. That is the prompt for this week. So inspired by Joshua, of course. And, you know, there's a lot of things, a lot of different kinds of pain and a lot of ways we can heal by by having a container for them, by thinking about them more clearly. And that's really one of the main mm-hmm. jobs of poetry. So good prompt for that, Katie. Do you have any uh, thoughts about it? Well, I really, um, with Joshua's book, the way he used because, you know, to propel forward, uh, uh, you know, a, a difficult and to write about. I would imagine it didn't sound like it was hard for him, but I assumed it would have been um, from the subject matter, but using it, that as a way to propel yourself further into the story and everything I thought was really brilliant. So it could be like that or more as a refrain. It might be a good time to bust out with a form that involves a refrain because there are so many that you could use with that. So I think there are a lot of possibilities um, and it's a good thing to explore, you know, to, to help ourselves heal and examine something that pops into your head from childhood. Um, that was painful in whatever that means for you. Yeah, yeah, really well said. So uh, excellent prompt for next week. Again, that is what a, or write a poem that addresses a pain from childhood and use a refrain. So looking forward to that. Thanks, Katie. And looking forward to the poetry space on Thursday, like we mentioned, where we're going to be talking about uh, criticism. Um, to, to, uh, j- to join that, just go to uh, Katie's Twitter, because it's a Twitter space is how it works, or I guess X space. Um, and that's why it's mm-hmm. like a conference call that anybody can join if we want to participate. Uh, you just need a, mm-hmm. a Twitter account. But go to Katie underscore Dozier to find that on Thursday at uh, four, no, 3, 3 p.m. Eastern time. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know what? We should also probably mention that this is the first prompt for the next series for the next month of prompts. So make sure to send in the prompts for this month by the end of the month. And then this prompt is actually going to refer to it will be the first one for the next batch. It's yeah. kind of the thing. There's always an untidy aspect to the fact that the months can't just be perfectly neat to accommodate our prompt poem. Yeah, really. Right. That, that moon for not cycling exactly 28 days. Like what? Yeah. <laughs> Why do you have to mess? I know up, we write poets. All we do is write poems about moon. So shouldn't it have helped us out? <laughs> really? Seriously? Well, yeah. So if you go to submit your prompt poems, I'll just do this here. You go to rattle.com. Um, slash prompts. It's really easy. Or you you know drop down from the menu and uh, go to the prompt poem of the month. There's a submittable link. We have all the um, we have all the prompts for this month listed there. There are four of them. Sometimes there's five, but there's always at least four the way the way months work. And um, but what it is is it's like based on the, the the where the show where the prompt is due for the show. So like November 27th is today. That's the last prompt like it was due in November. So that's the November prompt poem of the month. This one coming up, which is to be a write about childhood pain using a refrain, is going to be for um, uh, the next week's uh, prompt. And I was about to click here to submit, but then I realized it would like put my personal contact information in because it's autofill and submittable, so I won't click that. Also, <laughs> but <laughs> also you are not eligible, Tim Green. You I'm not, not eligible. <laughs> oh man, I was really hoping you see would... <laughs> how it feels. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I know how it feels. I'm never eligible. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm used to it. But anyway, yeah, thanks so much, Katie, for, for that reminder, too. Thank you. Thanks very much. 
All right. Yeah, that was Katie Dozier, our prompt poems editor, of course. And I was close up to show with the uh, Saiku of the week. And this is a high, this uh, science story that was inspired, uh, that, that inspired this Saiku is right down the street. So um, this is an article. And let me, let me put it up here so we can see. This is um, NASA's Deep Space Optical Com Demo sends and receives first data. And so uh, that is the uh, the article, which it doesn't really tell you a lot. But what it is is they're starting to the, use this like um, like broadband kind of satellite communication with distant space probes, and they're using near infrared lasers to send data to, so that they're able to like stream video, even though there's like a several minute delay when you're millions of miles away still at the speed of light. Um, you can still, you know, actually have video coming down from like the Mars and, and things like that. But what they did is to test this satellite, they, they launched this probe out, um, a while ago, and then they shot a beam of this infrared laser, um, to the spacecraft from the mountain right there. It's Table Mountain right above Wrightwood, California. And I actually found this news story in my local, like, news, um, Facebook group. And so uh, it's really interesting to be able to send um, infrared light that way. Thinking about that beam coming up in the middle of the the first thing in the morning, but you look up and you can't see it because it's infrared. So that's interesting uh, to me. Anyway, and here is the prompt or the the Saiku that that inspired. A little monoku. Here we go. It is her look, a neon sign infrared. Her look, a neon sign, infrared. That is the Saiku for this week. That is the show for this week. Thanks, everybody, once again for being uh, guests and for participating at this uh, unusual time, too, eight hours ahead of when we usually do it. But we had a good crowd. We had a great group of uh, prop poems, too. So thanks, everybody, for participating. Now, next week's guest on the Rattlecast is going to be Bob Hickok. He's back. Um, he was originally scheduled in September, had a family emergency. We had another poet come in and take his place at the last minute graciously, and she did a great job, too. But Bob Hickok is returning now. His newest book is Water Look Away, which is a really powerful book about, um, about a personal tragedy and, and you know, an attempted suicide. And it's a, a narrative book, too. And in typical Bob Hickok fashion, he does not want to read a single poem from this new book that just came out. He only wants to read books probably from like two books down the line that he's interested in now. So he said already that he's not going to read anything from Water Look Away, but he will be reading brand new poems because that's what Bob Hickok does. He is the guest on Rattlecast number 222, Monday, December 4th, back to the regular time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Hope to see you then. Hope you have a great week in the meantime, and I'll talk to you later. Uh, Goodbye.